Two. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writing Wrongs. My name is William L. Myers, Jr., and this is an Authors on the Air global radio broadcast. Today, I have the honor and the pleasure of interviewing Hillary Davidson. Uh, we're going to talk about writing. We're going to talk about her latest novel, Her Last Breath, which I just completed last night and absolutely loved it. Uh, for those few of you who don't know Hillary, Hillary is a two-time Anthony Award winner. She's the author of the Lily Moore series. She's the author of the Shadows of New York series, and she's written several best-selling standalone novels. Uh, Hillary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. It's so good to be back with you. I know. This is, this is a lot of fun. Um, so I know that you started out as a journalist. And for the people who don't already know how you made that transition, will you, will you talk about how you went from being a journalist to a fiction writer? Sure. Yeah, it's actually kind of a funny transition because as a travel journalist, I had several regular gigs for about 10 years. I was a guidebook author for Fromer's Travel Guide, and I was also the honeymoon columnist for Martha Stewart Weddings, which is something that makes you know, people who know the crime writing Hillary laugh because I was writing all of these happy honeymoon stories, family travel stories, business travel stories. And really in the back of my mind, I was sort of collecting all of these um, great settings and kind of dark anecdotes, things that I could never use in my writing, um, sort of like the happy travel writing. And they intersected in an interesting way because when I started writing, I started out with short stories. And I set several of them in these sort of um, destinations that I loved. My way of showing appreciation for a place was basically killing a fictional person there. But some of it actually came out of, um, you know, stories that I heard about a person who had gone missing, you know, while traveling. Right. Mm -hmm. And you never know whether, you know, did they deliberately go missing? Did they choose to do that? Did something happen to them? Right. Um, also, I love the idea that people often become different people when they're on the road. One of the things that always fascinated me was how people will behave in a different way. They're in a hotel, they feel kind of anonymous. Uh, maybe they'll be meeting someone that they wouldn't normally see in their regular life. And sort of, you know, there are all of these kinds of like secret interludes and things that are going on. And like I say, this none of this was stuff that went into my travel writing. So all of it actually kind of segued into, you know, I put my dark side down on, on the page, um, right. but it had to go into fiction. Right, right. So um, can I ask you, did you become a different person when you were out traveling? <laughs> you know, not really. I mean, I, that's the thing that's really funny. I joked for a long time that I was actually the most boring travel writer on the planet because the way I got into travel writing wasn't doing exotic travel at all. I got into it by pitching stories about my hometown. I'm from Toronto originally, right. and Toronto is an amazing city with a great food scene, great art, um, but one of those cities that people you know, hear about, but they don't visit, they don't know it. So I actually, for the first two or three years of travel writing, didn't go anywhere. <laughs> Just <laughs> writing about the place that I knew you know, better than anywhere else. Okay, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about writing, about writing fiction, um, before we get into Her Last Breath. I know that you've written both series and standalone, and I wonder if you, you could talk to us a little bit about 
the different challenges in writing a series compared to a standalone and maybe vice versa? You know, what are your limitations? What, what are you more free with in one compared to the other? Right, right. That's such a great question because they, they both have like amazing virtues and downsides and they're, they're polar opposites because having written two different series, I will say there is nothing better as a seat of the pants writer, which I am, to sit down and write a book where you already know your main characters, because that gives you a really solid base to build on. At the same time, it also limits you because you're not free to do whatever you want to those characters. When you're writing a series, I always feel like you have a kind of like a contract with the reader where it would be horrifically unfair to sort of, oh, turn the story around and pretend Lily Moore is the murderer at the end of the book or, you know, to, to you know, act as if um, Sharon Sterling in the Shadows of New York series was actually behind a crime. Like you, you have to play fair with the reader. And so when you're entering that world of the series, it means you really have to embrace the rules of the world that you've created. And with a standalone, it is like taking a step on a tightrope, um, you know, no net under you. You are out there not knowing what's going on, um, at least me, <laughs> because like I say, I don't have fun. Um, you don't know what's going to happen. And as a writer, I don't even know who to trust. When I'm writing a standalone, I'm discovering these characters. And usually I have a pretty strong sense of the scenario at the beginning of the book and sort of what brings you into the story. But after that, it's like everything is up for grabs. So there's that kind of wonderful security of the series versus the um, bold unknown of the standalone is maybe the best way I could quantify it. So let me talk to you about one of the things you just said, which I found very interesting. You said you're a seat of the pants writer. And as you're writing, you're discovering the characters. So how much in a standalone, how much do you know about, say, the two or three major characters when you first start writing compared to how much you know about them when the story's over? Wow, it's a world of difference. I would describe it like meeting a coworker that you know you are going to spend a lot of time with. You know some things about them. You, you know certain things about their skill set because they wouldn't be there if they didn't have a certain skill set in the first place. And you maybe know why they're embarking on this. So with her last breath, Deirdre, who's the main point of view character, you know at the very beginning of the book that her sister's died, she's at her sister's funeral. And one thing you can take to the bank is that she is genuinely grieving for her sister, even though she is estranged from the rest of her family. Um, but, you know, beyond that, beyond the kind of opening scenario, I find a lot of the time it is a get to know you process that can be surprising to me. Um, I think one of the, I know a lot of outliners and I'm always jealous, you know, of them because I wish I could outline. I am a failed outliner. I've tried. <laughs> um, but the, the virtue of a sort of the seat of the pants writing is that I think 
if your character does things that surprises you, the writer, they are definitely going to be surprising to the reader. So as a result, my first drafts, I just, I, I own this. They are disasters. They are messy. Um, I don't care because no one is going to see them. The first draft is me getting to know my main characters, getting to understand who they are, what they do, how they react, how they interact. And then in draft two, I can go back and make it all make sense. But the, the first draft is like a very steep learning curve. Yeah, so let me do this. It's what we, you mentioned her last breath. I am going to switch to, that is my background as well. <laughs> um, and like I said, I, I finished the book last night, love the book, love the <laughs> setup. And I mean, the, the very first chapter ends with the dramatic note that Deirdre, the protagonist, gets as a text from her dead sister. Can I, can I just read that? Is yeah, that a, absolutely. A yeah, please I do. Love this. So this is her dead sister, Caroline, has set up so that in case she died, Deirdre would get this message. And the message includes, if you're reading this, I'm already dead. No matter what it looks like, my death won't be an accident. Theo, that's Caroline's husband, killed his first wife and got away with it. Bring him to justice, no matter what you have to do. I love that because you know, you know that Deidre is now, she sets out on a mission. She wants to figure out what the hell happened? You know, was Caroline actually murdered or was it just, you know, a heart condition, which some people think? Um, what was Theo's involvement? And she goes out and plays detective. And I really like that part of it. And the other thing I, I want to I mention here is part one, you have the book divided into three parts. And part one starts out with a, a quote from Machiavelli. Everyone sees what you appear to be few really know what you are. And as the book unfolds, we see that that is true of all the characters. How much of that is a function, uh, you know, the difference between what they appear to be and what they really are, how much of that is a function of you getting to know them as the book unfolds? And how much of you, how much of that is Hillary saying, okay, I'm going to have this character, they're going to look like this, but be like that. Oh, it's so organic. I mean, in, in terms of, um, you know, how it's structured, it's funny because as the writer, I know what these characters are like on the outside. I sort of, you know, I have a very strong sense of how they present, how they look, how they talk, um, but not necessarily what motivates all of them. I mean, Deirdre would be the exception in that I, you know, 100% knew when I started writing that her grief for her sister was genuine. And as you said, that getting that, that message from her sister would motivate her to get justice. It, it would also make her kind of angry at her sister because she, you know, she wants to get justice for her, but at the same time, Deirdre's wondering, what were you doing married to a man who had killed his first wife and gotten away with it? Like, how is this the first time I'm hearing about this now that you're gone? Um, so there is some anger that's mixed up in there too. But definitely, um, I guess because when I'm meeting the characters, writing about them, getting to know them, 
I'm kind of getting under their skin or maybe to some extent inhabiting their skin. And so I become really aware of how much of a divide there is in terms of how they present themselves and you know who they really are. And Caroline's husband, Theo, certainly fits that to a T. He's from a very wealthy family. He's a handsome man, dresses well, um, though you, you'd certainly have some questions if you met him. He has lots of scars on him and he's chosen to distance himself from his family business. Um, it's not as strange as Deirdre is from our family, but definitely get the sense of a troubled sort of past there. But he comes across as a very successful, erudite, uh, charming man. And the reality under the surface is you have someone who self-harms to cope with their emotional turmoil. So I didn't know that about him when I started writing. That was something that um, I realized pretty quickly, I guess, once I started writing from this point of view. But yeah, it's um, a lot of it is like, wow, there's such a difference between how someone presents and what's really going on in their life. And maybe the worse the life is behind the scenes, the more they need to change their self-presentation. Yeah, one of the things, I mean, one of the, the most wow moments for me was when, when Theo, his wife is dead, he's grieving, and he puts his hand over a candle and lets the flesh burn. At that point, I'm like, whoa, this guy ain't what I think he is. Something, there's a whole lot going on with him. And, and you are very good at layering what's going on. You know, you don't, you find out a little bit more about Theo and a little bit more and a little bit more, the same way you do about Caroline, the same way you do about Deirdre, so that all these layers of complexity, they're not like thrown right at the reader, the reader kind of discovers it as the story goes on. Um, you know, one of the things that I like was the, the, the difference, at least on the surface, between Deirdre and Caroline. Deirdre, you know, everything she wears is black. She has tattoos. She's the dark horse in the family. Caroline was the perfect girl. You know, sunshine, philanthropist, sunny personality. She's the head of PR at the, you know, Thraxton International, the big family business. Did that, the contrast or the apparent contrast between the two of these characters, is that something that you just kind of found out over time? Or did you always plan at least a little bit on having Caroline and Deirdre seem to be polar opposites? Oh, I think from the beginning, I kind of envisioned them as, as polar opposites, that they would look very different, that um, Deirdre is very sort of tough self-presentation where she's all, like you say, tattoos and, you know, dark clothes and, you know, maybe leather, um, you know, whereas Caroline sort of radiated sunshine. I think the discovery to me was more about how there were similarities under the surface that neither of them ever acknowledged. And you kind of get this hinted at early on um, Caroline was a journalist before she married her husband. That was how they met. She wrote a profile of him. And she doesn't tell Deirdre a lot, but there are references to these scars and there's this kind of gothic sense almost that um, Caroline might have a dark side that she can't acknowledge herself, but that she sort of gravitates to other people who more uh, maybe externally manifest you know, that dark side. 
And so there's this sense of, you know, she's like the fairy princess, but even the fairy princess has the dark side, you know, and Deirdre for all of her darkness, for all that she's estranged from her family, there is still like a very caring, warm, nurturing soul in there, even though she probably punched me, you know, for saying that about her. That's not the kind of thing she'd want going around about her, but there, there's definitely that duality in, in both of the characters. Yeah, and with, with Deirdre, I mean, the thing that you do, you know, you get the this surface hardness and cynicism, but the whole book is she's trying to do the right thing here. She's really trying to get justice for her sister, find out what really happened. So even though she's rough on the inside, she's a justice seeker. So she's, a, she's ultimately a force for good. Um, let me talk for a minute about Theo, Caroline's husband. He has, you know, this, this horrible secret that he is sitting on top of that has driven him his entire life, uh, caused him to self-harm, um, ultimately affects his relationship with his wife. Um, but as the book progresses, you, and I, you know, I won't spoil it, you learn some things about that secret and you learn about deceit and the powerful role that a toxic person in a family who wants to manipulate others in the family and is willing to use deceit to do it, how much damage they can do. Um, and that really, for me, brought an added depth to the story um, and brought surprises as well. I'm glad. So uh, now why don't you tell us a little bit about Julia? I love Julia, the character <laughs> Julia, Theo's <laughs> sister. Um, man, what a bitch. I loved her. <laughs> she was a delight to write, I'm going to be honest. So I guess I backtrack slightly and I'll just say, so um, <laughs> in terms of keeping family secrets, because family secrets are so key in this book, I would say that both uh, Deirdre and Caroline's family growing up, there was abuse in the family and that was primarily their father beating their mother, which is, you know, the reason why Deirdre is estranged now from her father. Um, her mother has since passed away. And on the Thraxton side in this wealthy family, you didn't have physical abuse, but you certainly had emotional abuse, gaslighting, manipulation, um, you know, kind of the idea that I want you to play this role. I want you to present perfection to the world because you represent me. And this sort of demand that you make yourself into this character because, you know, that's how your family wants you to be, you know, it, it ultimately creates, you know, so much misery and so much pain. Um, so, you know, in terms of <laughs> Juliet, I, I thought of her she is just a terror. Like when you meet oh, yeah. her, she oh. is vicious, you know. You know, like uh, Caroline's line about her was that, you know, Jul Juliet's joy in life is firing people, which is absolutely true. She throws her weight around. She's, she's really like a dragon and she's compared to sort of these mythical beasts throughout the book. But, but at the same time, you get to the point I think in the book where you understand what has shaped her. I mean, Julia did not have a happy upbringing that she somehow turned against. This is someone who has been undercut by her family, 
Um, she really hates her brother partly because their father has set the two of them up against each other. Juliet is terrific at running the business. She's really smart and her father won't let her do it because she's a girl. Like it is just, and you know, the, the son who doesn't want anything to do with the business, the father keeps trying to woo him back to the business and will do anything to, you know, get him involved. So there's a lot of this kind of um, toxicity in the relationship that, Juliet and Theo aren't even responsible for it's been sort of them pitted against each other from the time they were young yeah and 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 all of that you know bring you know brings up the theme of you have these these flawed people and some of them seem so bad just rotten but there's a reason for it and it's 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 pulling the layers off the characters as you learn their backstory that you do understand, for example, with Julia, with Theo, with, with all of them really, how they ended up this way. That was really important to me because, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book, um, there, you know, there were a few situations in the last few years where um, friends' relationships, long-term relationships broke up. And I heard such stories about a lot of it was emotional abuse. A lot of it was, you know, really awful things behind the scenes. And my initial reaction to that was to be so angry at the people who would do that. So angry that, you know, anyone would ever, you know, lash out at people closest to them like that. But after a while, I guess I, I gained a certain perspective on it. And I started thinking about cycles of abuse and how the people doing this did not have healthy environments growing up either. And it's not an excuse. And I, I try to be really careful not to excuse the bad behavior. So, you know, partway through the book, Deirdre is forced to speak with her father again for the first time in years. Um, the fact that he beat their mother or her mother totally fractured their relationship. Um, and the relationship is not repaired. But part of me was thinking, well, what do you do about abusers? You, right. you can't exile them all from society. You can't stop interacting with them. If a person is willing to own up to their past abuse, to realize they were wrong, to realize that they needed to change, then, you know, how open can we be to having relationships then and to moving forward? So, um, you know, and that's not to say that everyone is redeemable, but I'd like to think that even, you know, some of the worst characters in the book, some of the most toxic, that there is a way to move forward for them and that there's sort of, you know, when you get to this place of understanding that, you know, it becomes acceptance, I guess, and understanding it becomes possible. Yeah, and I know, you know, the sense that I got with Deirdre and her father, they had they have to spend time together. They're now pursuing a, a joint goal. Um, it's gonna be very hard. Deirdre is not gonna like, oh, daddy, I, I love you. And he's not gonna, oh, Deirdre. <laughs> Um, I got the sense they will move forward, but it's going to be very hard and there will always be kind of that limit to how much either one is going to be able to open up to the other one. I think that's a really fair perspective. I think that's, you know, how I felt about it emotionally. I, I 
didn't want an ending to the book that would be, you know, neat and tidy and everything solved because things like that are not going to be solved. It's a process. It's always going to be a process and you're on a continuum with it. And like, how far do you move along? But I think um, one of the beautiful things about both of those characters, you know, Deirdre has such a hard shell around her and so does her father, or at least he did. He's, he's certainly opened up and changed. Um, but I guess I wanted, you know, Deirdre Shell to sort of crack open that bit because yeah. she's limited her life, her ability to trust people is limited largely because of what happened in her family growing up. And I hope that she doesn't live the rest of her life like that. I think that maybe by opening up a little bit and letting that light in that, you know, it sort of hints that yeah, she's not going to stop being tough, but that there are, you know, more positive changes ahead for her. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I want to point out was that even though Deirdre is somewhat, you know, somewhat broken a little bit because of what's going on in her life, she's strong. She's a strong female character. What, you know, what hurt her kind of closed her off a little bit but it didn't make her weaker. It didn't make her, you know, this shrinking violet. <clears throat> I think it just made her more aware, but you can tell she is a very strong person. Yeah, absolutely. She, um, I think in her mind, you know, she had to become tough because she was going to have to look out for herself. She wasn't going to be able to rely on other people. And so it made it almost like a mission for her to be really tough. She's not someone who can ask for help. You know, that for her, that's just sort of like the toughest thing to do. But she absolutely is great at, um, you know, standing up for herself, holding her ground, going after what she needs to go after. You know, there is no putting her off. Um, you know, she she's not going to be put back by a refusal. You know, she's going to keep coming at you. So she is a very tough character that way. She is, and she's and she's a great character. Um, <clears throat> so what I'm going to do is I'm 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 going to um, end the discussion of the book with the the quote from Nietzsche that's at the beginning of part three. He who fights with monsters should be careful lest he thereby become a monster. And if you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will gaze into you. That's scary. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, but I think it's appropriate to the book because there are real monsters in this book. And the people who are trying to you know, seek justice are having to fight these monsters. And they also, as part of that, have to look into the abyss, they have to look into themselves and their own dark pasts. Um, and so I think, you, I mean, you pick great, great, um, perfectly appropriate quotes for each of the three sections of the book. That's so great. It, it's funny because that's something I read years ago and it always stayed with me. I, yeah. I loved it so much. And I've kind of, I guess, given a lot of thought to this. And I would describe it as, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And not to give any spoilers um, about late in the book, but there's a point where Deirdre has a really important choice to make, where someone presents her with the option of basically getting revenge for what was done to her sister, if she will take this you know, 
very dark step. And that's that was sort of, to me, really resonated with this idea that even if you start out with the best of intentions, this desire for justice, you know, all it takes is a bad choice and you could become the kind of monster that you're seeking to root out, you know? So yeah, so I felt like that really, that hit home very hard. That was, that was, I thought it was, it was great. Um, so what I'm going to do now, Hillary, is I will wrap this up. Let me just get the right background here real quick. Okay. You're great at navigating this. Whenever I've tried to do this with Zoom, it's just all bad. I'm very impressed. <laughs> yeah, believe me, it, it's a disaster more often than not. <laughs> anyway, so everybody who's been watching, you have been watching Writing Wrongs. I'm Bill Myers. I've been interviewing Hillary Davidson, actually just having a conversation with her. Um, we talked about writing in general. We talked about her book, Her Last Breath, which is her latest book which I just read and I loved. Um, Hillary, do you want to take a minute and give people your social media credentials, where they can find you, where they can find your books? Sure. Yeah, that would be great. So um, um, you can find me online at hillarydavidson.com, just myname.com. Um, I've been doing events that if you are interested in seeing them, um, there's actually a part of my website where you can stream all of these lovely events I've been doing with bookstores like Poison Pen, Murder by the Book, Q and Willow, um, Ben McNally Books. Um, and I uh, links also to my social media on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So literally hillarydavidson.com is almost like your one-stop shopping for all of that. So thank you. All right. And thank you. This is William L. Myers Jr. My credentials are behind me. Hillary, thanks for taking the time to do this with me today. I know you're, you're busy out promoting the book. And thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And we will talk again. Okay. That would be great. Thanks.